listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. Well, if you're asleep or you've been living under large rocks and you're in the healthcare, specifically the pharmacy sector of healthcare, then um, you might not know that PBM reform is hotter than ever before. And that's why we're excited uh, to have guests today that that play in the space of pharmacy benefit managers, but they do it so at another level, kind of what I say is the next gen um, PPMs. And um, before we introduce our guests, the Senate panel has advanced drug pricing reforms through a bill um, that uh, many of our uh, United States senators are a part of. The Senate Health Education Labor Committee quickly advanced several general public bills um, led by uh, Senator Mitt Romney from Utah and Rand Paul from Kentucky, as well as Senator Tuberville from Alabama. And we want to constantly drive good education through the PBM Reform Podcast. So we're really glad that you're listening today. I would like to welcome our two guests from RX Benefits, um, Wendy Barnes and Mark Campbell, welcome to the PBM Reform Podcast. And I'm going to start with Wendy, but welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much, Todd. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Wendy Barnes, and I have the pleasure of leaving RX Benefits as our Chief Executive Officer. We're look forward, we, we look forward to the conversation today. Thanks for having us. Hi, Todd. Um, looking forward to the conversation as well. My name is Mark Campbell. I am a pharmacist and the Senior Vice President of Clinical Programs at uh, RX Benefits. So thank you for having us. Thank you both for being here. Wendy, I'm going to start with you. I just got back from the Assembia Specialty Pharmacy Conference in Vegas one of my favorite business conferences in specialty pharmacy. I wanted you to kind of stri- come straight out and explain what a specialty medication is from your perspective, because there's many definitions that have evolved over the years and why these medications um, are so much and, and they're so expensive and and really they have an impact on, on patients that are very specific to the disease state that they serve. Sure. Um, Gosh, not a loaded question at all, Todd. Um, I don't know that there's actually been an agreed upon definition for some time. Um, From my seat, I don't know that there is an agreed upon industry-wide definition, but I think there are some general characteristics that most individuals could agree upon in this industry. And certainly I invite Mark after I give my perspective to provide his clinical overlay. And I should footnote I'm a biochemist by training, not a pharmacist. So I can draw you chemical equations. I just can't dispense any of these drugs. So I'll stop short of commenting on anything clinical. Um, 
But I would say in general, um, they have certain characteristics, often high cost, unfortunately, which is one of the characteristics. And so is the type of disease that they tend to treat. They tend to be um, in service smaller populations on the whole, um, and those are a subcategory of specialty often referred to as orphan or ultra-orphan. And again, we can, we can spend a ton of time spinning around the, the various corollaries to this definition. Originally, they often uh, were categorized from drugs that were biologics um, or medications that required special storage and handling. So again, different characteristics of these drugs. But what's interesting is they can actually span a wide variety of price points, um, all of which do feel, I think, expensive to the general patient. But we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to, say, $10,000 or less. Um, broad definition, I know that's perhaps not exactly what you were looking for, um, but I would welcome Mark to add his, his two cents as well. I think that's exactly right. I mean, when we started with specialty medications back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we had so very few for the treatment uh, of some inflammatory conditions and uh, for multiple sclerosis. But utilization has grown over the course of time. And the common characteristic for products back then was they were truly considered biologic. So the manufacturing process was different. The storage and handling of those products was very different. And the cost associated with them was very different. So if you were a small pharmacist, uh, particularly a community pharmacy, being able to um, have those drugs on your shelf all the time on, on the off chance that somebody might come in and ask for one was relatively small. And so we began to see some co uh, consolidation of the dispensing of those products over time uh, in the form of specialty pharmacies. But now especially goes well beyond biologics. It does include things that are very high cost or that does have some element around the supply chain side of things in terms of storage and handling that can impact what gets designated as especially medications. So uh, I think you're spot on, uh, Wendy. And as we look forward, um, we are going to see more products come from uh, the manufacturing community to target rare conditions, orphan conditions, but we'll also continue to see more common use of anti-inflammatory and derm uh, products. Uh, we've seen an increase in utilization from the 25 years ago of almost no utilization in the average plan to uh, roughly 1% of members today use an anti-inflammatory and derm medication. So hopefully that helps. Mark, I would just add your comment related to um, potentially the special storage or handling or perhaps friends requirements associated with these drugs. That has also just given those special requirements associated also with that high cost. It's narrowed the number of pharmacies that often support um, the more limited distribution drugs, which right, wrong, or otherwise, Todd, has also impacted access to those drugs and in turn price point when, of course, there's only, you know, let's say a handful of pharmacies that may have access to be able to dispense um, a certain number of these drugs. And that's, that's also, you know, a characteristic that has somewhat defined um, the economic reality that we're in today. You know, when I think of the building of an automobile in a plant that has different components of where, what's next in the chain of building such automobiles. And I, I turn that into a PBM, 
I think of claims processing, re rebate, reimbursement and management, clinical programs, drug utilization review. There are pharmacists that work for um, PBMs that are very specialized, even in disease state specific. So why is specialty different than the normal claims processing? And how do the current models of PBMs or the three biggest PBMs kind of take advantage of that conveyor belt processing to kind of do things that really confuse pharmacists, physicians, um, other claims processors, certainly our, uh, our, certainly our policymakers and our politicians um, are definitely confused. And they rely on their lobbying groups to describe to them and, and educate them as to what's really happening, which that in itself can become uh, very um, muddy in the water per se. So, you know, from your perspective, you really lead in um, in processing specialty medications too. Um, what's so different about the the world of specialty medication reimbursement um, that that makes the PBM business model, or it can make the PBM business model even more complex? Um, I can take like, the lead on that, and then Wendy can certainly add into this, but <clears throat> let's go backwards a little bit, and then we'll kind of move to, to current day. But if you look at the impact of specialty spend on employers as part of their overall cost, even 20 years ago, going back to uh, 2003, for most employers, specialty spend would have been less than 1% of their total cost and far less than 1% of their utilizing members. And you compare that to today, where specialty spend accounts for about 55% of the cost and is really related to about 1.5% of their members. So that means the other 98.5% of the claims that are running through for members uh, are generics or branded medications. And the overall cost for that 98.5% is less than half of what the employer is paying. So when a decision is made to prescribe a specialty medication, uh, obviously we want it to be done for all the right clinical reasons, but there can be lots of different choices that could achieve a similar clinical endpoint that could have vastly different costs associated with it. So having a process in place where we make sure that we have the right drug for the right patient can be a matter of making sure we have the best clinical outcome for the member, but also making sure we have the best economic outcome for the employer and for the employee. I always try to remind everybody that the employers pay the invoice every month, but it's ultimately employees who pay for their benefits. Um, they pay their premiums and the cost of their healthcare gets baked into their overall compensation package wherever they work. and so. It's important that we do the right thing for the member, not just clinically, but economically, whether that's directly to the employer or uh, indirectly for that member. Now that we have more competition around specialty medications, we've seen uh, quite a bit of a change in how rebates <clears throat> can Im impact that cost. And 20 years ago, there were no uh, rebates for Embrel and Humira, which were probably the two most common products at the time. 
But nowadays we have lots of different options available to treat um, dermatological conditions like atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, to treat inflammatory conditions like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, or, or to treat uh, gastrointestinal diseases like uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And so now that we have more choice, that breeds more competition. And the more competition we have, the way that the system is set up today, manufacturers generally compete for market share, not based on their AWP or average wholesale price, but based more on the rebate value that they put uh, into their contracts with PBMs, which make their way downstream ultimately to the employer. So it's very hard if you're, um, if you're trying to analyze how do I get the lowest net cost? It's a factor of did I get the right product in the first place? Did I get a good discount? Did I get good rebates associated with that to determine that true net cost? And uh, even if there was complete transparency, it, it can still be a rather challenging thing to get to just because there are so many various options that could achieve a same or similar result. <clears throat> And I, Todd, just wrapping around Mark's answer, I think part of your question was also around what's different about dispensing a specialty medication. Yep. Yeah, generally speaking, um, the cost of fill is different between dispensing a specialty medication and a non-specialty medication, not necessarily for all of them, but that's the yeah. general comparison, meaning there's more effort, labor, time, often follow-up required for the patient, getting back to whatever the FDA may have required the manufacturer to do in order to bring that drug to market, um, back to REMS requirements, whatever those things are, um, they tend to be more expensive in general to dispense the medication. Um, I won't provide any political commentary as to whether or not the amount of that differential is warranted, but nonetheless, there is a substantial difference in and what's required to, to get the pill out the door or syringe, whatever it is, um, some of which can even include, you know, home administration. There could be a nursing care element um, you know, to administer in the patient's home. There are a number of things that um, can happen associated with one of these drugs that does look a little different than um, the general prescription that you or I would walk up to a counter in a community pharmacy and pick up. Yeah, that's a great point. And um... Just to give you uh, a bit of a an example there, you know, I worked as a community pharmacist for a period of time, and I have a, a, a strong sentiment towards community pharmacy. But if, if you have to have a vial of, um, for example, Pomalist on your shelf, that could cost you $10,000 just to stock it on your shelf. <clears throat> for many community pharmacists, that may be more money than they want to have just sitting around on the shelf waiting for somebody to come in. There, so sometimes it is easier to allow certain specialty products to flow through different channels. Um, it does mean some loss of revenue to a community pharmacist, but it's also one of those um, pros and cons of having your money tied up in something that may not be getting dispensed on a regular basis. See, I understand just in being in, in pharmacy for so long that PBMs will develop that list of specialty medications that are typically already going to get a prior authorization uh, sent out or, or request um, for medical necessity or clinical program rules or whatever. 
is tied to um, that specific NDC and how those uh, drugs are are specifically excluded from coverage under that self-funded employer's benefit health plan. And now we come up with the term alternate funding programs, um, which I'm told um, should in, in many ways bring a big red light of, hey, warning, warning to our benefit advisors. So what is wrong with these alternative funding plans? I can only imagine how, like I said, the um, the current status of of the three biggest PBMs may, um, you know, utilize alternative funding. But from your perspective, um, why should our benefit advisors um, be hesitant to use them? Yeah, I'll start with just kind of our overall perspective within RX Benefits. And Todd, I think uh, I, I should call out Mark for giving him credit for really leading um, our company strategy around alternate uh, alternative funding options. Um, he very early on was unequivocal in his stance that it certainly wasn't a standalone solution, that alternative funding is never going to be the answer, um, just given um, all of the issues with it, which he or I can you know, share a perspective on that, that it needs to be part of a broader holistic approach to managing um, specialty medication care. Um, I, I think in general, um, calling them good or bad really doesn't get to the root of the issue. The, the primary issue is when you decide not to cover a medication, if an employer decides not to do that, well, then you're leaving a bit of a question mark for the patient as to whether or not they will in fact qualify for one of those alternative funding options. And in that process, a number of things can happen. You can have a delay in therapy. You can have someone who potentially doesn't qualify. There's no guarantee that individuals will qualify for a number of these programs. And then, of course, I think there's the larger ethical question, which is one that Mark helped us really talk through as a leadership team, which is if these are supposed to be charitable dollars directed towards you know, patients who don't have the ability um, to pay and or don't have coverage at all, what is the ethical answer to purposely excluding certain medications from what otherwise would have been a funded benefit um, in order to take advantage of these alternative funding pools? So, there are certainly some murky um, ethical questions to be asked and answered in this space. And Mark, I defer to you on your additional thoughts here. Yeah, so I, I do have, um, personally, I have my own opinions about this, but it, I want to try to, in, in your question, present um, perspective as well. So let's take two different scenarios. Let's say, um, I'm Joe's Pallet Company. That's my uh, fictitious example that I always use. And Joe has a thousand members that are covered, 500 employees and uh, another 500 dependents. So he's got a thousand people he's responsible for providing a prescription benefit for. And he's spending about $800,000 a year on his prescription benefits. And now he hires someone new and that person is on a medication that costs $800,000 a year. So he just doubled the cost of his program. And for him, that's extremely concerning. Now, he, he arguably would have stop-loss insurance, but um, 
he's still going to get hit with higher premiums on stop loss and perhaps lasering so that that member's not included under the plan anymore. So he does have a long-term concern with, with this member, and some employers are looking at, at these advocacies or patient assistance programs as a solution for Joe. And so there are a lot of brokers out there that, that think that this might be a good path for them to travel. <clears throat> to Wendy's comment, we don't know if this person would actually qualify based on the criteria set forth by the manufacturer. And that's where most of these dollars come from. Sometimes they come from foundations, but, but generally the payer of first resort for these assistance programs is going to be the manufacturer. <clears throat> if the member uh, qualifies based on the household income, uh, then you do need to get a letter of uh, declament saying that they can get the medication through their traditional benefit without having to pay the full cost. And therefore, that provides evidence to the to the manufacturer that uh, they should qualify under the rules of their of their assistance. <clears throat> so, if you're Joe's Pallet Company, you may have just averted you know something that could have been a catastrophic issue for you financially and, and wrecked your your cash flow or your ability to continue operations. So I get that. The flip side of the argument, though, is that is this something that's sustainable for Joe's Pallet Company? These placements are really at the will of the manufacturer based on the criteria that they set forth and the dollars that they set out. Um, and those dollars are earmarked for people who are underfund, un, underinsured or uninsured completely. And is this something that's voluntary? Joe's Pallet Company has a thousand people, 15 of which, if we use averages, are going to have a specialty medication. Are we going to tell all 15 of those people you don't have any coverage until it's proven that you can't get patient assistance? Or is it going to be a voluntary and retrospective program where we're going to come back and say, um, we're not going to force anybody into this, but we we are going to look after you've had a medication filled and see if there's something you could qualify for. And if you do, we'll place you with your consent uh, with manufacturer. Uh, and if not, we'll continue to support this as the employer. And some programs do work like that. We do have uh, an option for our customers that does work that way. But the other piece of this is that uh, I said I was going to give you a couple of examples. If I have somebody who is not on a drug that costs $800,000 a year, let's say we have a drug um, like Humira uh, that cost, uh, has an AWP uh, over $7,000, but after discounts, after rebates um, and other considerations, the cost of that could be as low as $2,500 a month. If I were to compare that to the cost to get patient assistance where I'm paying someone 30%, to get that placement, that could be costing somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,800 a month or uh, $1,900 a month. So the true savings to the employer really isn't $2,500 a month. It's more like six or $700 a month. And there are products where it's less expensive to go through a traditional process like ours than it is to go through a patient assistance program. So we encourage uh, employers who are going to look at a retrospective approach that's voluntary to also focus just on 
those medications that would likely exceed $100,000 in a given year after discounts, after rebates, and all of that is factored in. It's a much smaller subset of their overall population, but it is really those instances where it could have a material impact on their cash flow and allow them to remain sustainable. And Mark, I would just add your commentary on rebates while clearly secondary to the you know, patient care and getting access to therapy in a timely manner. I, I think it's also important to contemplate the entire economic picture for the employer sponsor paying, um, particularly factoring in whatever percentage of their employees may end up utilizing alternative funding and potentially foregoing the rebate that they would have otherwise collected on that brand medication for those that you know have anticipation of seeing those dollars come back and being credited, uh, that sometimes can be a surprise depending upon how these programs um, are pitched to, to certain employers and brokers. So our approach is, again, a little bit more holistic just to make sure that both the broker and employer are eyes wide open as to what the economic impact could be and again, with very little commentary on one being right or wrong, we just want them to, to really have the full picture. So there's been talk about new policies, uh, laws that are supposed to be proposed in order to curb and truly reform uh, the current PBM models. Um, but the two of you are in this every day, day in and day out. Um, and that's why we're so excited to have you here. So can you bring us up to date? Are there any future funding legislation changes coming up that could impact alternative funding? So there has been talk about looking at manufacturer copay assistance programs, but I want to draw a distinction between manufacturer copay assistance programs and patient assistance or advocacy programs. A manufacturer copay assistance program is really designed to help offset out-of-pocket costs for a member uh, in a funded benefit. So <clears throat> Mark has to go to the pharmacy to get a prescription. I have a $50 copay. Um, if the manufacturer has copay assistance, equal to or greater than $50, then the pharmacy can submit a second claim to a secondary payer to offset that copay for me. Um, PBMs have, over the last few years, developed programs that will allow them to raise the copay, bypass the accumulator that would um, accumulate the members out-of-pocket cost towards their maximum each year, and then maximize the value of those coupons. So there are several states that have taken a look at that and either do not allow uh, the bypassing of the accumulator. So whether the member pays for it or a third party pays for it, whatever those dollars are that are collected by the PBM and thereby, therefore by the employer do need to apply towards the accumulator. Um, and there are some that are just looking in general at whether or not manufacturer copay assistance in general should be allowed. Um, so I think the future of manufacturer copay assistance in the short term is probably here for a while, but could be dramatically changed if the um, language around accumulators does apply more universally across um, the states. 
But in order for you to do that, you have to have a central point of fill. You can't have, it's not easy to have uh, an accumulator adjustment program where you're dealing with individual pharmacies, lots of individual pharmacies. So by virtue of some of the states looking at regulations that now do not allow PBMs to direct members to a single point of care, uh, you are having uh, the impact in a different way uh, to circumvent manufacturer copay assistance programs. Now, personally, you know, I, I understand why people are looking in this direction, but at the same time, this is helping to lower out-of-pocket costs for employers today. If you take these programs away, their out-of-pocket, their, their costs will go up. The members' costs won't necessarily change substantially, but the cost that the employer has to then pass back to employees could increase over the course of time. The only way to offset that is for us to restructure how those dollars which are coming from manufacturers make their way back to the employer through a, through another channel, whether that's rebate or other incentives. Wendy, you know, we've, I've referenced, uh, you've, you've done a good job of not referencing uh, the three big, three big PBMs. Um, but for our listeners sake, how does RX benefits, you know, differentiate from those three um, huge companies that really process what 80, 80 plus percentage of all prescriptions throughout the country. But how does RX benefits uh, differentiate? I appreciate the question. Um, I, I think there's in general, Todd, very little understanding of what the PBM industry even does, let alone what the distinction is between the different types of players. Um, I always like to joke that my parents still ask me what I do for a living um, to include having having worked for one of those um, big three for a substantial number of years. Um, we'd like to refer to ourselves at Rx Benefits as a pharmacy benefits optimizer. Frankly, it's a term that we came up with. Um, and really what we do is we partner with the big three for what we believe they do well, which is aggregate rate. Um, and I don't know that anyone could dispute that, um, whether that's on the network side or the rebate side of the equation. We tap into that given the number of lives that we service, and we primarily focus on those self-funded small to mid-sized employers. That's who we service. And in return for all of the lives that we manage, we then pass along that rate that we contract from the big three. Straight pass through, we're not keeping any spread on that transaction. But the things that we feel are a little bit more misaligned from the larger players and, and those we've, we've referenced a bit already in this conversation um, has to do with owned fulfillment, which we don't have. Um, so we don't have any misalignment there. In addition to clinical decision-making of which uh, Mark leads our team to do that, meaning having an independent review of, is this in fact the right therapy at the right price? Um, in addition to other factors, we provide that on top of um, that rate that we pass along. So we're able to do that independently. We're also able to provide the account management service to our clients, which we just believe in general um, is better suited to a size company that we are to service those self-funded employers. So said differently, we like to think we take the best of what the big three do and then layer on our version um, of what we think they're perhaps not as well positioned to do and or perhaps a little bit more misaligned 
with the self-funded employer. And in turn, we've been able on average for a new client who joins us. It's not uncommon, Todd, for us to reprice their, their RX benefit and produce savings upwards of 20, 25% in that first year. And then year over year, 10 to 15%, just based upon the number of lives that we have under management that they otherwise wouldn't be able to achieve on their own. They just don't, they're not large enough. Your typical 500,000, 1,500 life employer, they're simply not going to be able to command that type of pricing for their benefit. In the decisions that are coming from our government leadership at the federal and state levels with, with regards to PBM reform, there are a lot of people that have their ears. There's a lot of lobbyists. There's a lot of consultancy. There's people that are heroes in, in my side of it, like Antonio Chacha, um, who is just filled with uh, tremendous amounts of data and information to really make sense of it all. There's an organization that was quoted by Fierce Healthcare, um, an electronic magazine. Um, it was the the article was titled PBGH PBGH what employers want to see as Congress aims to reform PBMs and this organization which is a PB PBGH I can't say it, it's too many too many white, uh, al alphabet soups um, purchase purchaser business group on health uh, one of these consultant groups that are feeding information to our you know policymakers are saying they that the four things that they're asking Congress to commit to, and that is eliminate spread pricing, institute radical transparency. I'm not, I'm not sure what the word radical means per se. We'd have to probably read the white paper. Ensure 100% of discounts are passed through and make PBMs fiduciary. Now, if we jumped into this, we'd have to have a four-hour um, episode, so we're not going to be able to do that. So I'm going to take number four, and I'm going to ask Mark first, what is a fiduciary PBM? And is that the answer to kind of unraveling the issue that we have in the United States, which is we have the most expensive uh, processing of all prescriptions ever in the history of healthcare throughout the world, where our country is is held hostage in some ways to this model of current uh, PBMs. So what is a fiduciary PBM and what, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? So, um, so I'm going to go ahead and make the disclaimer that I'm a pharmacist and, and not a lawyer, but I am going to give you, um, uh, my opinion on this. And I ran a PBM for uh, a very long period of time. That was a transparent PBM. We had a single Mac list. We had manufacturer contract contracts. We didn't take any margin. And so, all that information was audible and available to our clients. Now that was uh, almost 20 years ago and it'd be very difficult to run that same operation today because of the, some of the issues that, that Wendy just spoke about in terms of scaling and, and having the ability to volume purchase. But at the same time, we did consider ourselves a fiduciary in a very limited basis because a fiduciary can have a broad application I'm not ensuring um, the financial security of your plan. That that's your job, Mr. Employer. So if you if you go bankrupt, I'm not required to make sure that your members continue to receive medication. But we did consider ourselves to be fiduciary in our responsibility to make sure that we were 
accountable for the choices we made through our utilization management programs and in particular our prior authorization that we would not be preferring one agent over another uh, if it was not in the best interest of both the employee and and the plan uh, so there this conversation around fiduciary i think is is the one thing that right now uh, pbgh did not get uh, and I suspect there'll continue to be more conversation about it. But if we begin to look at how we define that level of fiduciary, we may see uh, more of a path towards a success. But PBMs, um, and there are all kinds of them out there in terms of, of size and where they focus in the market, uh, if we layer on a broad definition of fiduciary, I would think it would be problematic for each and every one of them. I appreciate that because it's been confusing. I've heard several definitions over the years of what that means and what the practices are. So really um, respect your uh, definition because you're being very specific instead of it being kind of a broad uh, stroke, which brings me to my question for Wendy, which is, so the, the three of us are sitting here talking today, our listeners, some of them understand what's being said. Some of them know parts of what's being said. I'm probably in that category. And there's others like in, you know, that have soaked in it that know exactly what you're all, everyone's talking about and understand it and how to align it. But it's the patient that I'm thinking of. It's the consumer I'm thinking of. And I think all of the confusion in the market from rebate cards to Mark Cuban's uh, entry into generics and um, Kyle McCormick is a pharmacist here in Pittsburgh that takes cash only. He doesn't even accept insurance. He's a hero. So um, I want to know from your perspective, how do we how do we teach patients to better understand drug pricing? How do we educate them and doing it in a way that they can trust in what we're teaching them so that they can go out into the world and really make some decisions as the ultimate consumer um, that is good decisions for them and their family? So how do we do that? Oh, gosh. Um... Good question. Um, I actually had a fair amount of time to think about that when we all kind of got sent home in the early days of COVID. It was actually at that time that I was running pharmacy for Cigna and Express Script. So it was a crazy time in their business. Clearly, mail order at that time became, you know, just a, a huge channel opportunity given, you know, the challenges of of otherwise going to your community pharmacy or your local um, chain pharmacy. And so we had to spend a lot of time thinking about how do we get information um, out to patients so that they, one, knew how to even acquire their medication if they hadn't accessed a different channel other than, you know, whatever pharmacy they've been accessing. But during that time, I think there was a, a bit of a logarithmic explosion of education for consumers, not only around the different kinds of pharmacies that perhaps existed in their network, but also their options on what their drugs cost. And I also do have to credit um, some of the cash um, brands that are out there, GoodRx and others, with truly no commentary on whether they're good, bad, or otherwise for benefit. But these different kinds of brands that hit the market, hims, hers, good, I could, uh, true bill, I could go on and on and on. It started, I think, a wave of questioning amongst patients saying, is this the best price for the medication I need? Am I getting it from a pharmacy that 
is service, servicing me in the way I want to be serviced and where I want to be serviced and at a price point that I believe is fair. So I still think it's early days, Todd, in that education journey, but I think we've started a dialogue that previous to COVID didn't really exist because I think people were a little bit asleep to just assuming they had to go precisely where their physician may have sent the prescription. They may have not even given any thought to what other pharmacies were in their network where they could fill a prescription. And I think it comes down to really a pretty simple question. If you're the patient who needs to fill a medication and that is asking wherever you're ultimately going to get it filled, is this the best price for this medication? And so many pharmacists are so knowledgeable on checking and giving you options. And, uh, you know, I'll say I have a lot of empathy for the pharmacist having to function as a benefit navigator. Uh, It's not only time consuming, but I can only imagine the difficult conversations that happen um, at the counter or virtual counter, as it were, particularly when a patient can't afford what it is that they're looking to have filled. But asking that question is just a great start. Um, I'm always intrigued when I've asked it myself, how occasionally the cash or the club program, depending upon what pharmacy it is, can sometimes end up being less expensive um, than the funded benefit, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, And I think new news for a lot of patients. So I think it's going to be a journey, Todd, but I think we've started it, which which is great. Well, thank you. And I know that um, being in the business, it rolls off our tongue and we understand it front and back. But there are so many that I talk to, even family members that, you know, expect me to have the answers. And I point them to (laughs) other resources because I'm like, don't ask me. Um, I have a, a, a general idea, you know, as a consumer, I'm not a pharmacist either. So I think I have a pretty good handle on what is a PBM and how they work and but it is changing and it changes as we move forward and it, it'll continue to change. Um, I, I want to want to bring things back um, uh, to you, Mark, and and basically uh, want to understand, like from the industry perspective, um, PBMs, uh, physicians, pharmacists, patients, we're all working together to protect the patient without uh, causing that catastrophic, uh, horrible financial outcomes. How how the listening pharmacists right now, the pharmacy owners right now who are under pressure um, for a, a variance of reasons, including DIR fee changes that are coming in 2024. But how do we kind of, how do you coach the industry right now and working together to try to prevent um, those financial barriers for our patients? So if you look at the vast majority of the claims that get filled and go back to my comment earlier, 98.5% of the prescriptions and uh, account for roughly 45% of the cost. But those are patients who are either using uh, a community pharmacy, uh, maybe a, a chain pharmacy, in some cases, maybe using a mail order pharmacy. And we look at the cost basis for what we're doing based on how much the plan wound up paying for this prescription or how much the member wound up paying for this prescription. And having worked in a retail setting for a number of years, and in particular in a community pharmacy setting where I had time to spend with my patients, being able to assess people, having the time to have a conversation with them about what their doctor prescribed, 
Uh, doctors are, are inherently well-intentioned with what they do, but they don't always have the information around what a product costs um, or perhaps what other alternatives might exist on somebody's formulary. So having someone who can take the time with the patient who has congestive heart failure, who has hypertension, who understands uh, what their fill history looks like. Um, if somebody comes into your pharmacy and you say, you know, you haven't filled your anti-hypertensive in a couple months, what's going on? That could have more economic impact and more clinical impact on that member and ultimately on the people who are responsible for that member's plan than saving uh, a few dollars here or a few dollars there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't really think about how we begin to create more normalcy and transparency so that people can have more information available when they make decisions. But, you know, the pharmacist-patient relationship is, when it works, it is a beautiful thing to see because it does help to create better outcomes at a lower cost, always. Um, and I think if we can drive more people to have that pharmacist-patient relationship, then we would be better off. Now, I know that I'm swimming upstream here. Uh, while we have a, a massive number of independent pharmacies across the country, their overall share is small and shrinking. Um, but if I were advising somebody in my family where to go, I'd say go to a pharmacy where you can have a relationship with that pharmacist. And maybe that's a Walgreens for you if you live in a place where the where the Walgreens pharmacist has the time. Sure. But in most cases, uh, an independent is going to be that resource uh, for you. Uh, as for the, uh, the the physicians, you know, when patients come in to see you, they may have seen something on TV. Direct consumer advertising works, and it works very very well. Um, I think pharmaceutical manufacturers spent about half last year of what all the automatic, automated uh, manufacturers spent on uh, direct consumer advertising. Uh, and it's focused on a fairly narrow set of products. So if I'm trying to motivate you to get off your sofa and go in and see your doctor, I'm less likely talking about drugs to treat uh, debilitating chronic illnesses, and I'm more likely talking about things that are more convenient provide symptomatic relief um, or have some cosmetic value to it. And providers don't want to be that gauntlet that people have to run through. Um, they'd rather have the insurer do that. And so in many cases, they're willing to see if, a, if, if the employer's plan will pay for it. But GLP-1s is uh, probably top of mind for a lot of people right now because it's uh, in all the rage in social media. But saying yes to somebody who wants to just shed a few pounds uh, is saying yes to a prescription that's probably going to cost that employer uh, six to seven hundred dollars this month and every month thereafter that that gets refilled so that's seven thousand dollars the average cost for somebody who's taking a generic for um, uh, cholesterol is probably about ten dollars so you could treat one patient who wants to shed a few pounds for $600, or you could treat 100 times that number of people, uh, 600 times that number of people for um, cholesterol, which which is going to have a better health outcome on the overall uh, health of the population. 
And those are things that we eventually have to start thinking about. Where do we put our dollars? It's very well put, Mark. Uh, thank you um, for that. Um, Wendy, bringing uh, good people to the Pharmacy Podcast Network, PBM Reform Podcast. I want to give a shout out to you and your team at RX Benefits. If you're listening and you're curious, please go to rxbenefits.com. But Wendy, we have to have you come back to the PBM Reform Podcast to give us an update. I'd like you to bring a, another guest and hopefully it's a pharmacist because they're my favorite providers. But We would love to come back. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. You're listening to the PBM Reform Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If there's anything we can ever do for you, our favorite providers, pharmacists, and our technicians, the right hands of our pharmacists, please reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast at pharmacypodcast.com. And once again, if you'd like to learn more about RX Benefits, go to rxbenefits.com. Hey, thanks for listening. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.